Welcome back to the Spartan History Podcast. This is episode 16 and part 3 of Jason and the Golden Fleece. Last time in the retelling of what is my favourite myth from antiquity, we saw Jason and his valiant Argonauts travel from the Bosporus Channel, making their way along the southern coast of the Black Sea to that body's easternmost point, finally viewing Colchis for the first time. The section of the narrative we're looking at this time is one packed full of powerful and preponderant figures from Greek mythology and will be, even for me, a detail-heavy episode. With that in mind, I won't be going into a significant amount of preamble before getting into the story proper, this time. Apollonius starts Book 3 of the Argonautica in true Homeric fashion by invoking the knowledge of a muse, specifically the muse Erato. This particular muse was responsible for stories of love, telling the no-doubt mythologically knowledgeable audience of the time that this part of the story would be one involving love and passion. Concordantly, this episode has been rated L for listener discretion. L for love, that is. As we've been dealing up until recently with the Bronze and Mythic Age, it's practically an oversight that I haven't discussed the muses up until now. I intend to rectify that discrepancy first, before we catch up with Jason and the Argo. The muses, as an idea come directly out of the tradition of epic oral poetry. It's impossible to tell how far back in time they feature in story, but it does seem to be a practice peculiar to the Greeks. Their antecedent for a great many cultural practices, the Mesopotamians, have no matching set of divinities. The muses' presence in story added considerable gravitas to the speaker. Imagine for a moment that 4,000 years ago we are sitting around a campfire beneath a sky coruscating with stars, and I was preparing to tell you a story that contains 16,000 lines of verse. A retelling that could take as many as three days of your time. In that harsh past, it would certainly want to be a good story. To catch your immediate attention and ameliorate any possible sedition to my authority, I tell you this story comes directly from a goddess, a muse. Now today I'd be labelled mad, but I believe millennia ago that would have given the speaker a God-given authority and immediately quietened any dissenting voices especially if it was a great story. Rage, goddess, sing the rage of Peleus' son, Achilles. The goddess Homer is referring to here in the first line of the Iliad is none other than the muse, Calliope. She was responsible for the art of epic oral poetry. The scene is set simply by this one beautiful line of epic verse. This will be a story about Achilles and his legendary rage, one told by the goddess through Homer. He invokes her once more to begin his second epic, the Odyssey, when he says, Tell me about a complicated man, Muse. Tell me how he wandered and was lost when he had wrecked the holy town of Troy. Once again, a simple yet evocative preface to the work at hand. Another goddess-given story, this time telling the audience of the Archean hero's most wily member, Odysseus, and his adventures after leaving the burnt ruin of Troy. He calls upon other muses a number of times throughout his work, generally in moments of extreme pathos or violence, almost as if to say that only the divinities on Olympus have language developed enough to tell the story truthfully. At times, he even questions the muses directly rather than simply invoke them. I'll give you a quick example from Book 2 of the Iliad. Tell me now, muse, who were the best among them? of all the men that came with Atreus's sons. Naturally, Homer has all the answers to these and many more questions posed of the gods, but seemingly, at times, needs a little help from his friends. 
The other father of Epic First, Hesiod, had a special relationship with the Muses as well. He tells the listener all about it in the introduction to his Theogony. When speaking in the third person, he says, One day the Muses taught Hesiod glorious song while he was shepherding his lambs under holy Mount Helicon. Further on he says, They breathed into me a divine voice to celebrate things that shall be and things there were aforetime, and they bade me sing of the race of the blessed gods that are eternal. The Theogony does just that, describing the origins and genealogies of the Greek pantheon. Hesiod, who was just minding his own business and tending his flock, had the goddesses transmit their story directly into his mind. And so we are led to believe he laid down the crook and took up epic poetry as his vocation at their bequest. Referring to all nine of the muses, Hesiod, whose work was later than Homer's, inferences that the whole cable are with him to perhaps endow his tale with a little extra authenticity. Don't listen to Homer's stories. He only had one muse on his side. Come and listen to mine, which are endorsed by the entire gamut. I've spoken briefly before about the other, now largely lost, epic cycle that deals with Thebes and Oedipus. The only surviving line of that cycle's third work called the Epigony is presumably its first, and reads as follows. Now, muses, let us begin to sing of younger men. I think it's safe to suggest that the entirety of the epic tradition, most of which is now lost, was underpinned by an understanding that it was the muses whispering into the ears of the rhapsodic practitioners. According to Hesiod, Zeus lay with the titaness Nemesini for nine days straight. If you can believe it, and if this podcast has taught you nothing else, it's not put anything past Zeus. Consensual for a change, and protracted, the coupling resulted in nine daughters who would become known as the Muses. Nemosini in ancient Greek means memory, and each of the daughters were responsible for a different facet of the Greek cultural memory and its transmission down the generations. With them resided the entirety of the Greek identity, mythology, and spirituality. Coming out of a tradition of oral song, our word music comes directly from the Greek word for muse, musa. Apollonius of Rhodes begins Book 3 of his Argonautica by saying the following, Come now, Erato, stand by my side, and say next how Jason brought back the fleece. Starting his work this way achieves two goals. Firstly, to tie his story back into the ancient epic tradition of Homer and Hesiod, and by specifically naming Erato, he tells the audience that it will be the muse of love taking the lead on this part of the story. The author doesn't disappoint either. Writing at a time significantly removed from the oral tradition, it's hard to say how true to the original myth Apollonius's version is with any certainty. However, earlier love stories, say like Odysseus and Penelope, lack some of the vehemence of passion Book 3 of the Argonautica has. I think the author turned up the dial on the romance between Jason and Medea and gave posterity perhaps its greatest love story from ancient Greece, juxtaposed, no doubt intentionally, by the violence and murder that saw it extinguished. I'll be quoting regularly from his work, as I think he does a far better job than I ever could in conveying the depths of emotion involved. So without further ado, I give you the next instalment. We closed out part two, with Jason and the Argo nearing the Colchian kingdom of Aetes, with the winged torment of Prometheus crying its clarion call overhead. 
A twisted journey along the northern Anatolian coastline was straightened unerringly when the Argonauts collected the wayward sons of Phrixus, who, with their father's dying request, were attempting to return to Orchomenos and their birthright. Wrecked on an island full of nasty birds, the gratitude they had for being rescued turned to trepidation at the thought of returning home to King Aetes, whom would be none too happy about the band of legendary heroes in their wake. One good turn deserves another, and the princes agreed to guide Jason and his men eastward. After invoking the muse at Arto, Apollonius starts Book 3 by describing the Argo now docked and hidden along the reedy banks of the Farsis River, popularly believed to be the River Rioni in modern-day Georgia. The crew are vacillating as to the next move when the scene is pulled to Mount Olympos and the worried gazes of Hera and Athena. The two goddesses, both of whom have skin in the game, are worried about the outcome of the Argonauts' meeting with King Aetes. Left to their own devices, the crew could well die in that distant land. This just wouldn't do, as Hera's ultimate goal was the downfall of King Pelias back in Iolcus, who at this very moment was murdering Jason's parents with a glee born of victory, and to be fair, necessity. Jason and Alcamede had a penchant for illicit conjugal visits, and Pelias could ill afford any more pretenders to the throne. So, the goddesses and council struck upon a plan to aid Jason in his quest for the fleece, and their gaze came to rest upon Medea, the younger daughter of King Aetes, as the vehicle for their immortal aid. Medea was a colossal figure on the stage of ancient Greek mythology and tragedy, though this would be her first appearance upon it. A practitioner in the arts of magic and witchcraft, she had apparently devoted her life in the service to the goddess Hecate. Another Titaness, this deity had extremely old roots and originated quite possibly in Egypt, from where, as we've seen in our episodes on the interconnected late Bronze Age empires, she was quite likely imported into Greece by Mycenaean traders. Salient to that possibility is the fact that the Egyptian root of her name means magic in the pharaonic tongue. It's precisely that magic, in the hands of Medea, that Hera and Athena hoped to harness in saving Jason. The easiest way to gain her help, they decide, would be to make Medea fall in love with Jason. Believing correctly that love will conquer all, including the familial ties between father and daughter. In their timeless wisdom it becomes clear that they need to bring into their scheme another actor or two to affect Medea with a passion strong enough to betray her country and her family. Now Hera was excellent at vengeance, as we've seen time and time again, but love really wasn't her purview. As for Athena, well she unabashedly reminds Hera about her legendary virginity. Seriously, she made Queen Elizabeth I look positively unchaste by comparison. All hope is not lost, for Aphrodite is one of their besties and not shy in joining the pair for all sorts of mischief, remembering the golden apple and a little war called Troy. In particular, it is Aphrodite's wayward son, Eros, who they really need to enlist. We know him best as his Roman equivalent, Cupid. Aphrodite was ostensibly married to the crippled god Hephaestus. The goddess of love had lay with Ares, however, to beget Eros a union which made for an incredibly petulant, truculent, and cantankerous offspring due to the pedigree. But he could fly, and had a magical bow and arrows that made whomever they struck fall in love, the perfect weapon to achieve the goddess's ends in this case. Hera and Athena make their request of Aphrodite, who in turn bribes her ever-disobedient son into action. Picking up his quiver and bow, Eros sips from his place of repose, Colchis bound. 
It really is a good thing for the Argonauts that the goddess has got involved in their quest, as back on the Argo, Jason is pitching his plan to the crew, and it isn't exactly the work of a mastermind. A daring, nighttime raid utilising the various abilities of his legendary crew? Simply bypassing the king, and heading straight for the Grove of Ares to lift the fleece from its resting place, sailing off in the Argo as the sun rose across the Black Sea. Something similar worked for Odysseus at Troy. Unfortunately, Jason was not a complicated man. He told his crew that he would instead walk into the palace and just request the fleece from King Aetes like it was nothing. As companions, he took the sons of Phrixus, who were already reluctantly back in their homeland, and Telamon, a man who embodies the phrase, bull in a china shop. Luckily Hera raised a mist to enshroud the party as they disembarked from the Argo, masking their movements through potentially hostile territory. Along the way they come across an ancient tree, its many branches forming a web across the blackened sky. Hanging from its branches are the slowly decaying bodies of male corpses. At this point, Apollonius relates that in Colchis, the earth and the air share the burden of the dead equally. The men are strung up to wither, and the women are consigned to the ground below. Reaching the palace, Hera disperses the pall she had brought down, revealing to Jason and his party the wonders of Aetes' palace. Born of the sun god Helios, and an oceanic nymph named Perse, Aetes was originally the ruler of Corinth where he shared hegemony over the Peloponnese with his brother. Dissatisfied with joint rule, he abdicated the Corinthian throne and headed to the eastern shores of the Black Sea and founded the city of Ea. Aetes's father, Helios, had done Hephaestus a solid. When years passed in his chariot, he collected the lame god from the Phlegrian fields after battling the giants. In return for that help, Hephaestus created for Aetes a multifaceted palace richly adorned. The god also created for the king two bulls with feet and mouths of bronze, who breathed fire and yoked them to a plough of adamant. In the palace, Aetes lived with his wife, Idia, his son, Absyrtus, and daughters, Chalciope, the widow of Phrixus, and finally, Medea. All were in the great hall as Jason and his companions made their entry, save Medea, who was momentarily delayed by Hera. At the sight of her lost sons, Chalciope flew into their arms, sobbing at the return of her beloved children. She admonished them for fools, having left their homes at the request of a dying Phrixus. Her cries brought Aetes, Aegea, and Absyrtus over to the newcomers. At a clap from the king, the palace servants sprang into action, preparing a feast with proper hospitality. It was then that Medea found her way into the chamber, dark eyes probing over first her nephews, and then over the two strangers in their midst. With her gaze meeting that of Jason's, Eros, who had flown into the palace prior, released a magical arrow from his bow which struck Medea in the heart, and a gasp of wondrous heartache escaped her lips. I'll let Apollonius describe the effects of the love arrow himself. The bolt burnt deep down in the maiden's heart like a flame, and ever she kept darting bright glances straight up at Jason's son, and within her breast her heart panted fast through anguish. All remembrance left her, and her soul melted with the sweet pain. His mission accomplished, Eros flitted back to his mother's side, cackling all the way home. Like all young men, Mischief was never far from his thoughts, and despite obeying his mother's wishes, he nonetheless loosed an arrow with a taint to its love. A foulness that would play out in due course. But for the moment, the king knew nothing of this, and was interested in how his grandsons had returned to Ea, 
and who were the two strangers with them? With everyone sitting down to the feast, Phrixus begins to tell his grandfather of the failed journey back to Orkomenos and subsequent rescue by the Argonauts, revealing that Jason is in fact their cousin, as Phrixus's father, Athamas, the king of Orkomenos, who had a lousy choice in wives, was the brother of Jason's father, Jason. He finished the tale by revealing the reason the Argonauts are here, and implores his grandfather to aid them in their noble cause. Aetes was once a good man, but the benevolent king who married his daughter to a fugitive from Orkomenos had grown old and bitter. Paranoid, jealous, and surreptitious, there were daggers in every corner of the king's mind. Flying into a rage, the king accuses Jason of falsehood, the fleeces of ruse, and his true intentions to take the throne of Ea, deposing Aetes in the process. He goes further and tells Jason's son that had he not dined at his table already, he would cut off his thieving hands and cut out his lying tongue. Clapping a hand over the mouth of Telamon, who was about to explode himself, Jason calmly addresses the king. Recounting the story of his own family's misfortune in Iolcus, and of the challenge made by the usurper Pelias to quest for the fleece, it was not for himself that he sought to possess it, but for his imprisoned parents and the denied birthright of the Yolkan throne. Momentarily placated by the soft words of Jason's son, the king brooded over what he saw as his only two options. Slay them now as they stand, or make trial of their might. Stroking his chin, he thought this second option sounded the best. If your story is true, and by the gods your intentions are pure, then I will give you the fleece to bear away to Hellas. First you must prove your might and worth by completing a contest I myself have completed, though it be no easy thing. I have two bulls of bronze feet that pasture in the fields of Ares, whose fiery breath scorches all it touches. Them I have yoked and previously ploughed four furrows. Into them goes not the corn of Demeter, but the teeth of a dragon. These grow into armed men, which I slay at once by my spear as they rise, surrounding me on all sides. I plough in the morning, and by the evening have finished reaping death upon the harvest. In the morning, if you do as I have done before, the fleece is yours. So the king spoke, conveniently leaving out the part about the dragon guarding the fleece, but perhaps he didn't want to overwhelm Jason, and took a first things first approach. Justifiably downtrodden, Jason's son accepted the challenge despite voicing his dismay at any potential success. Putting his arm around the forlorn hero, Aetes slowly steered him out of the palace, muttering something like, Never mind. Big day tomorrow. Get some rest. However, both of his daughters looked on with worry in their hearts. For Chalciope, she worried that if Jason failed, her sons too would perish as punishment for bringing the Argonauts to Colchis. Medea's thoughts were only of Jason, the possibility of his death on the morrow almost more than she could bear. From the moment the arrow struck her, Medea was no longer acting with free will. The manipulation of her fate started by the gods would now come full circle. Back on the Argos, Argus, the eldest of Phrixus's children, is consoling a morose Jason, telling him that he will go back to the palace in secret and win Medea over to their cause. She being a practitioner in the arts of Hecate, she would surely know a way to defeat the fire-breathing bulls of Hephaestus. Argus, of course, didn't know that his cousin was already primed and ready to assist the man who she had so recently fallen in love with. Worse still, 
Back at the palace, Chalciope had witnessed her father curse the day Phrixus ever landed at his palace on the back of that golden ram. That his own grandchildren, whom he thought had long gone to the land of the Archaeans, would return one day with strangers who sought his very throne. His daughter heard him proclaim that once the bulls had torn Jason and his men to shreds, he would visit harm upon her own children. Retreating to her chambers in fear for her family, she began to ponder how she could win Medea over to Jason's cause. With her charms on the Argonauts' side, they would surely defeat the challenge. In that moment, Argus arrived in his mother's chambers to see what could be done about enlisting Medea's aides and any thoughts Chalciope had of loyalty to her father and country dissolved. Back in her own chamber where she had fallen asleep due to the exertion of her affection, Medea was troubled by dreams of Jason's son and his likely death beneath hooves of bronze. Waking in tears, she too fought an internal battle of loyalty, but Eros's arrow had buried itself deeply into her breast indeed. Unable to vocalise her love for Jason, the tears continued to flow down her cheeks. A handmaiden saw her state and quickly ran to inform Chalciope that her sister was in distress. The elder sister rushed to her younger sibling's suite and immediately inquired as to her alarm. Obfuscating her real intent, Medea professed it was through worry over her nephew's fate if Jason should fail in the contest that caused her sorrow. Overjoyed at her sister's concern, Chalciope instructed Medea to simply use her arts to help the strangers, thus confounding their father's schemes for their deaths. Hecate's faithful agreed, purely for the safety of her nephews naturally, not for Jason and his irresistible locks of somewhat salt-stained, unkempt hair. Phrixus's widow returned to her chambers to give her sons the good news that Jason would receive the necessary relief. For Medea, left alone once more, she began to concoct a method to offer help to the man who was so spited by her father. Apollonius really pulls out all the stops in describing the passion racing through her veins in this scene as her resolve to betray Aetes solidifies. Of her heart, he says, and fast did her heart throb within her breast, as a sunbeam quivers upon the walls of a house when flung up by water, which is just poured forth from a pitcher, and hither and thither on the swift eddy does the beam dance and dart along. Even so, the maiden's heart quivered in her breast. Of her anguish, he says the following, And the tear of pity flowed from her eyes, and ever within anguish tortured her, a smouldering fire through her frame, and about her fine nerves, and deep down beneath the nape of the neck where the pain enters the sharpest, whenever love directs its agony against an unguarded heart. It's incredibly racy stuff for a work over 2,000 years old, almost the equivalent of a modern-day Mills and Boone novel, with dragons. Staying on course, she pulls forth her chest of mysticism and works a potion that would offer the one anointed immunity to harm by bronze or fire. However, there was just one final ingredient missing, and with Helios beginning his journey back across the sky, she knew just where to find it. As the Promethean eagle made its return trip from dining on Titan liver, a speck of blood off its beak often dripped to the Colchian soil. From the gore rose a flower, whose sap she milked to complete her concoction. Secreting it within her girdle, she mounted the chariot and rode out to where the Argo lay docked, and in the process solidified her destiny. Back on the ship, Argus had just returned from the palace and regaled the crew with success in winning over to their cause Medea, whom he expected any minute to appear. Fearing any potential chastity, 
Hera whispered words into the ears of the Argonauts' resident seer, Mopsus. The goddess told him that he was a pretty lousy prophet, if he hadn't worked out by now that Jason and Medea would need some alone time. Blessed a crowd of Archaeans scare her off love's often light hand. Making the <clears throat> sound, Mopsus kindly let Jason know that perhaps he should await the Colchian princess's arrival alone on the shore. Distracted by the upcoming trial, he nodded dully and made his way forward to await his saviour. Not sparing the whip, Medea strained her horses to speed ever onwards till finally Jason appeared before her, striding along the trail. She pulled back on the reins, grinding the chariot to a halt as it seemed that time itself stopped. Almost falling from the car, she landed on the path before her beloved. I think I'll let Apollonius do his thing right here. The sight of him brought lovesick care. Her heart fell from out of her bosom and a dark mist came over her eyes a hot blush covering her cheeks. And she had no strength to lift her knees backwards or forwards, but her feet beneath her were rooted to the ground. So they two stood face to face without a word, without a sound, like oaks or lofty pines, which stand quietly side by side on the mountains when the wind is still. Then again, when stirred by the breath of the wind, they murmur ceaselessly. So they too were destined to tell out all their tale stirred by the breath of love. Oh. Jason breaks the silence and speaks honeyed words to Medea, though vinegared words would have been just as effective at this stage. He tells her the story of Theseus and his quest into the labyrinth of Minos, how failure was a certainty if it wasn't for the assistance of the princess Ariadne and her ball of twine. How the Athenian prince took her with him when he left the island of Crete. Jason leaves out the part where Theseus dumps her on an island and takes off with another woman, but that's understandable. Still speechless, Medea draws forth the charm from her girdle like it was her soul and hands it to him. Finding voice, she gives him instructions to anoint himself with it, and for that day he will be immune to bronze and fire and impervious to all harm. With the charm's magic, he will be able to yoke the bulls of Hephaestus and with them plough four furrows in the fields of Ares. Once the dragon's teeth have been seated and their giant offspring begin to pour forth from the ground, she told him to throw a large stone amongst them. This will confuse the creatures, causing them to attack one another and making them easy prey for Jason and his bronze-headed spear. To digress briefly, the story of the dragon's teeth goes back to the legendary founder of Thebes, Cadmus. Originally a Phoenician prince, he left his home to search for his missing sister Europa, who lo and behold was abducted by Zeus in the form of a bull. Cadmus's quest proved fruitless, and in his wanderings he came across the sanctuary of Delphi where the oracle demanded he give up trying to find his sister. Instead, he was told to follow a special cow that had a crescent moon on its flank. Where that cow stopped from exhaustion, Cadmus was to found a city on the spot. Having done precisely that, he was preparing to sacrifice the cow to Athena and had sent some of his men to fetch water from a nearby spring. They never returned, and when he went to investigate, Cadmus saw that the spring was guarded by a dragon. Killing it in turn, Athena appeared and tore the teeth from the creature's mouth, giving half to Cadmus and instructing him to plant them in the soil. The goddess told him that if he cast a stone amongst the beings that then rose from the earth, they would turn on themselves. Apollonius tells us that the other half of the teeth were given to King Aetes, but not why. Presumably, he was a companion of Cadmus's before leaving Greece to found Ea in the Caucasus, though there is no real explanation in the sources. 
Interestingly, the word used for these chthonic, earthborn creatures is spartoi, which roughly translates as sown men. Although close to the word Spartan, it doesn't seem to have any etymological links through antiquity. Back to Medea and Jason. Unable to voice her wish to be his for all eternity, she pleads that once back in Greece, he remembers her name and thinks about her kindly. In return, Jason soothes her worry by telling her that if she willed it, there could be no forgetting as she would be by his side. An honoured guest in Greece, he would make her his queen. They slowly come to an accord in their mutual affections, and looking up at the sun, Jason realises that time is of the essence, if he is to complete the task at hand in the day allotted. The pair clasp briefly, making promises to meet after the coming enterprise's success, and separate with Medea mounting her chariot, and Jason returning to his ship. The Argonauts are overjoyed that Medea has offered to aid their leader, and the hopes on board the Argo are at an all-time high. Back in the palace, Calciope too is ecstatic that her sister has helped the strangers, believing it to be the best way to protect her sons. Only Medea seems a little worried, pondering the evil she has taken part in, but helpless to resist the pull of her affection, she resigns herself to events as they will play out. The palace was abuzz in preparation for the day's trials. Aetes' retinue marches out into the plain of Ares, dressed in all the finery of a rich kingdom. The king himself wore a breastplate, gifted by Ares for his deeds in the Phlegrian fields. He wore too a form-plumed helm that shone like his father Helios, a shield of many hides, and a terrible, irresistible spear. Apollonius remarks that had he wished, the king could have defeated the entire crew of the Argo single-handedly, especially with Heracles out of the picture. On the Argo, the crew are also busy, polishing armour, sharpening swords, and making ready to support their leader. Jason was following Medea's instructions for preparing the magical charm of protection. Anointing himself in its eldritch liquid, he joined the gleaming heroes of Hellas on the shoreline, and en masse, they too marched to the field of Ares. With the sun at its zenith, the two parties squared off opposite each other with naught but the yoke of bronze and a plough of adamant between them. The men of Colchis gazed arrogantly at the strangers, certain that they would meet their end on the stretch of dirt between them. The Argonauts, confident in the assistance offered to Jason, stood proudly in their gleaming armour. Jason strode boldly forward, taking note of the tracks in the soil, tracks made by bronze hooves. Coming nearby to the yoke, he planted his spear into the ground and removed his helmet, leaning it against the spear. Shield in hand, he knelt to more keenly observe the footprints surrounding him. In a burst of smoke, fire, and earth, the two bulls leapt from their subterranean hiding place and snorting in rage immediately charged Jason's son. Not having time to rearm himself, he planted his feet wide and prepared for the onset. As the creatures neared, they in unison disgorged flame from their mouths and nostrils which engulfed the figure before them. Losing sight of their prey momentarily, the bulls must have been shocked when Jason stepped out of the fiery glare and clubbed them both over the heads with his shield. The days only lasted a second, but it was all the time Jason needed. With both the beasts' head bowed, he calmly slipped over the yoke of bronze and drew on the plough of adamant, completing the first part of his task to the acclaim of the Argonauts. Taking up his helmet and spear once more, Jason used the weapon as a goad and began pricking the bull's backsides. They brayed and stomped in impotent rage at the dishonour, but soon enough Jason had them ploughing deep furrows in the fields of Ares. 
It was quite the sight, and even Aetes forgot himself and offered a smile and a small round of applause to the might of Jason. Once he had four ploughed lines, Jason unyoked the bulls, and giving them each a smack on the backside, sent them off. Quickly turning to the river, he filled his helmet with water and drank deeply to wash the soot and soil from his throat. Returning to the field, he began to cast the dragon's teeth into the freshly ploughed soil. Casting his gaze all around, he didn't have long to wait as the earthborn creatures began to rise from the dirt. Springing up all over, they assembled with double-pointed spears and helmets that gleamed so brightly the gods on Olympus needed to avert their eyes briefly for the glare. Remembering the Council of Medea, Jason dislodged a large stone from the field and tossed it amongst the creatures. As it flew through the air, King Aetes gasped at the realisation of betrayal. He had begun to suspect something was amiss. The bull's fire usually reduced those it touched to a smouldering corpse, and in truth, that was all very exciting when Jason survived. But now, watching the hero use the boulder to confound the earthborn, he knew something was amiss. The instant the stone landed, the dragon-teeth warriors turned on it and themselves. Jason used that moment to spring forth and began slaughtering the distracted monsters. Apollonius says that the recently ploughed lines filled with the blood of the massacre as Jason carved a swathe through these distracted opponents. With the clash of weapons dying down, along with the screams of death, only Jason stood proudly upon the field, amongst a sea of carnage. Ever magnanimous, the sun was quickly setting when Aetes walked up to the victorious hero and informed him that on the morrow he would receive the fleece and could then get the hell out of his city for all time. Turning on his heel, he left with his retinue for the palace, with only evil and malice in his heart. Jason was taken up by the Argonauts, who carried him back to the Argo, cheering all the while. There they sacrificed to the gods and celebrated into the night, oblivious to the evil being plotted against them even now from the palace. And that, friends, is where Apollonius finishes Book 3 and where I too will call time. The next instalment of this retelling will take the story through to its thrilling conclusion with Jason and his merry band of Argonauts fleeing Colchis like the pack of thieving fugitives they are. Chased into the night, their journey home is one of twists and turns resembling a Hellenistic odyssey in many respects. I'll also squeeze in a bit of an epilogue to the story and look at the fates of Jason and Medea post-Argonautica. That last part will drop on Sunday the 15th of November. Up next for the podcast, we are returning to the Spartan narrative with episode 17, Early Spartan Expansion and Unification, and I promise to come up with a far better episode title by then. But you get the gist. Dropping on Sunday the 1st of November, and you are all very welcome to join me for that. Until then, dear listeners, take good care and speak soon. Please check out my website, spartanhistorypodcast.com, where I have extra information, photos, and maps of the areas discussed. You can find me on Twitter at Spartan underscore history, and on Facebook too, at Spartan History Podcast. If you like this episode and are keen to hear more, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you catch your pods from, and leave a review. See you next time.